proudly resents proudlyresents.com. Today we proudly resent the movie A Bucket of Blood with the reviewers from IGN, Digigods, and Box Office. Boxoffice.com, Box Office Magazine, all of the above. So we have Wade Major who also reviews for uh, Film Week, which is a great podcast also. And the King, Mark Kaiser, who uh, sold me my car. That's true. And by the way, you know, when you sell somebody your car, you think to yourself, this could go bad. Mm -hmm. Even though you know the car is good, nothing wrong with the car, who's to say that when Adam drives away with my car, the engine won't fall out? And then you will resent me forever. Proud, you will proudly resent me forever. <laughs> I, I don't, Thanks for working that day. Thank you. So, but it turns out that I sold you my car over five years ago. Uh -huh. And that car, ladies and gentlemen? Still running. Just dropped $700 on it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but how many miles does it have on it? It has a, a lot. So there you go. So it turns out that Adam and I have a connection. That's our connection. Our car. By the way, I have a Lexus now, which I finally paid off. Yeah. I am not selling that car for five thousand freaking dollars. That car's gonna go for a lot more than that, huh? What if we were dating? Uh, if we were dating, yeah. I'd give it to you. Yeah, that's for thousand dollars. So you're better already. You yes. would give it to her. Exactly. Wade, you recommended this film, A Bucket of Blood, uh, nineteen fifty nine. An American International Picture, which I love that mm -hmm. company title. Do you have any background on the film? That, well, yeah. Well, the reason I picked it, uh, you know, a little over a decade ago, I, I uh, co-produced a documentary that my colleague Ray Green, uh, who used to be editor of Box Office and who also does a lot of off-ramps for KPCC, where I do Film Week. Um, Ray and I did a documentary together, which was originally his idea, and he pulled me in to help produce it with him, called Schlock, The Secret History of American Movies, which was, uh, we wanted to do a documentary. Originally, we planned to do it in about seven months, and it took nearly two years, where we treated exploitation films seriously, where we weren't just, hey, look at these wacky movies, these crazy drive-in movies, aren't pe weren't people silly back then, where it basically was, uh, you know, this is the underground of American movies from the 50s and 60s that wound up becoming the mainstream of American movies from the 70s and 80s and onward, and then it pioneered what we, how we market movies today, how we choose subjects today, the movies we make today. And we wanted to sort of explore that. And A Bucket of Blood was one of the seminal films of, of that premise because it was from a period when Roger Corman was trying to be taken seriously as an artist. And, you know, he'd made a film called The Intruder, which is the only really serious film he ever made uh, with William Shatner as a race baiting uh, kind of a Klansman. And it, it was very much, a, you know, a, a kind of a social protest film that came from Corman's uh, heart. And he was never taken seriously with that or anything else that he did. Uh, of a more serious nature. And we, we saw a bucket of blood as Corman kind of saying, I'm an artist and I want to be taken seriously. And that's sort of the theme of the film. It's about this guy that nobody takes seriously, played by Dick Miller, one of Corman's favorites. And uh, he winds up basically, you know, no one takes him seriously as an artist, so he winds up killing people and creating these, uh, these live sculptures from their corpses that... Uh, are meant to sort of become works of art and people take him seriously all of a sudden well they, they love him they think he's amazing yeah they, yeah wait first of all be funnier you're boring everyone Seriously. <laughs> um so mark's honest computer checking email <laughs> <laughs> actually i'm on j-date that's a whole other story i'm not it's on not jewish i'm not on j-date yes i am jewish i'm well. proud of it but not practicing girls write that down not practicing okay you're single I'm you single. A, is that what you say i'm single and i like to mingle and that's why i bought a lexus well, i was just saying the first five minutes you told everyone you drive a lexus and you plugged your film and the way you plug his movie so you know we all know where our priorities this show's a winner okay so but you know what's you know what's what's interesting about the film too is that when you look at at corman he is the perfect guy to direct this because don't forget in the movie 
he creates art that costs no money. He just kills people, which is free. He takes a pancake pan and he kills somebody and makes art out of it. You know, he stabs a cat, which is with a knife. And so it's like it really feeds into Corman's movie making aesthetic, which is just cheap art. Also, (laughs) what I loved about the film is all that little spoofy stuff about the bohemian art scene and the one guy who plays the poet who, who, who just riffs off these ridiculous, nonsensical bohemian riffs. And Corman, I, I think Corman was making a comment about that, too, because you know, Corman went to Stanford for a while. He was studying like electrical engineering or something. So here's a guy who going, who's going to Stanford, you know, pretty buttoned up place, you know, living in this bohemian time. And I think in a way he was also making fun of that. Uh, the, the thing that I enjoyed most, when we when we made Schlock, we interviewed Corman and we interviewed Dick Miller. And the the question to both of them was, uh, was is, there, is this really like your spiritual autobiography? Are you making, is, is this a comment about Corman? And I would have expected Dick Miller to say, absolutely. And Corman to go, no, 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 no. And it was exactly the opposite. Uh, Corman said, you know, there, there probably is something subconscious and psychological uh, where I'm speaking to uh, something there. And Dick Miller was the one who said, nah, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Well, what did Dick Miller, so this takes place in the bohemian coffee shop and he's trying to fit yeah. in with these frauds yeah and then he becomes a fraud and he becomes the toast exactly the what was his take on the movie dick miller's well, dick miller's take on the movie was that it was it was just roger uh making comment about the times but also making a movie that was going to be entertaining you know everyone understood that that roger had a mandate from aip at the time which was the the sam arkoff mandate which was we got to be able to sell this people got kids got to go bait want to go see it we got to be able to sell sell it and AIP they they pioneered youth culture I mean they understood as Sam Arkoff told us that um, kids wanted to get out of the house and their parents were only too willing to give them the money to get them out of the house Mm -hmm. and that's how drive-ins thrived and um, AIP was the first studio to put teenager in teenage in movie titles I was a teenage werewolf I was a teenage Frankenstein vampire whatever fill in the blank and so it was all oriented toward teenagers and that was a cool scene for them bohemians and beatniks and that was uh, it, it, it sort of wove itself right into the fabric of the culture that that young people were interested in at the time and uh, as, as Dick Miller saw it you know Roger was simply exploiting something that was a part of the youth culture zeitgeist and it was no more and no less but it's such a great, there's so great lines about, um, right? <laughs> it's a funny movie. I mean, people shouldn't think that because it's about killing people that it's uh, you know, with a title, a bucket of blood, you think, oh, it's going to be some well, gore let's film. Let's talk about the title. There's no bucket <laughs> and there's very little blood. And, right. But why couldn't it be buckets of blood? If you're going to lie, lie big. I, you know, that's a question for, uh, for Sam Markoff. Well, because it's sort of that theory where like, in it, like why is, why is Alien more terrifying than aliens Uh the films because one alien is always more scary in your mind than a thousand aliens so one bucket scarier than a hundred buckets so who's in that bucket am i gonna be the unlucky one whose blood will be in the one bucket otherwise you don't want to die and have your blood on the floor is what you're getting at i don't want to die anyway after i die i don't care where my blood is because i'm dead doesn't matter to me (laughs) but it's like oh my god i hope that my blood's in the bucket yeah, <laughs> I don't want that. But but it's true. It's like it's there's actually there's very little blood in it, mm-hmm. and some of that is of course because that's a special effect and it could potentially be phony and all that sort of stuff. Like I know that that Miller, you know, who by the way played that character in other films or at least in name, 
because the character's name is Walter Paisley, uh-huh. and he played a character named Walter Paisley in other films. That's how beloved this film became. Like, if you see Gremlins, Dick Miller's in Gremlins, and he plays a character called Walter Paisley, because the director of Gremlins was such a fan of Bucket of Blood. Same with uh, Evil Tunes. Evil which, Tunes. Which has one evil tune. But, uh, see, they, they just switched it up. <laughs> but Dick, Dick Miller, as, as I understand it, I mean, he he likes the film a lot. Obviously, it, it gave him a lot of fame, and he it embarked him on a career that continued for decades. Uh, you know, he... The only, the only thing he didn't like about the film is that he felt that it was super low budget. The thing was like $50,000. He shot it in like four or five days, which of course is fairly standard for the time and especially for that genre and for Corman. Um, but I know that Dick Miller was like, you know, like, I would have liked, the, the film would have been more terrifying to him. This is what he said. If the actual, the art that he produces, try not to give away too much, if the art that he produced looked more realistic. Right. You know, as opposed to like where they, God knows how much of the $50,000 they spent on the actual art he produces, probably $10. First of all, great read of IMDb. (laughs) (laughs) Not true. I, I, no. Well, first, well, it's Wikipedia, but also uh, uh, I have seen the film, obviously, and know about it. But yeah, so Dick Miller, you know, he loves the film, made him famous, but he understands it is a very low budget film. So he, he's this busboy, he can't get any respect, and he accidentally, which is so weird, stabs his cat. Well, he stabs wall. his landlord's cat. His landlord's cat gets stuck in the wall. But not in the bottom of the wall. In the middle of the wall. Like, yeah. But, well, he stabs it in the middle, and then when he cuts it out, it's by its head. It's a yes. continuity problem, also on IMDb. Which is great, because you, you, you could tell, and Whale talked to this in, in a moment, and he's, he's Wait, chomping, he's chomping at the bit. so they're killing each other. So you can tell. It's so funny <laughs> the way that, that Dick Wait, Miller... Mark Dick Miller away from Wade to no, no, his point. Dick <laughs> Miller, in, 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 in his greatest performance as an actor, the way he cradles the dead cat, he's trying to hide the fact that the cat is just like some plastic cat with like painted on fur. Yes, immediate rigor mortis for the cat. Look at Wade. Go, Wade, go. No, I well, I was going to say, that, you know, Dick Miller is a wonderful guy. Guy. And he's he's one of those character actors that I don't think has ever really gotten his proper due. You know, he was really only a leading guy for for Corman, mm-hmm. and uh, he's you know he's so uh, bucket of blood is really it's it's sad, but I want to say it's like the high point of his career in a way. I mean, it's it's the role that should have made him because what he does in a bucket of blood is he he does he does what I think we've lost in comedy acting. To be honest. He, he thinks, he plays the character seriously. He plays it straight. Yeah. Everything about the way he plays it is absolutely earnest. Um, but yet, it's the earnestness that makes it funny. Because it's earnest about something that is preposterous. And most comic actors today are trying to be funny. They're playing it for, for laughs. Oh, like They're, the mask. Uh, Jim Carrey mask is over it. the top. Is, is this, he has the same kind of transformation. Wink, wink, like. nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. You know, and and even those like like Jim Carrey when they do it. I mean, they're they're basically parroting Jerry Lewis, but Jerry Lewis always played his part straight. Every one of Jerry Lewis's characters, as wacky as they are, they're they're sincere. And Dick Miller is absolutely sincere in this movie. I mean, he he is his his bucket floweth over with sincerity, and and that's why he's both funny and yet incredibly empathetic. And and the point I want to make on this, and I, a friend of mine who's a, who's a screenwriter and has a, has a blog, um, needed some examples the other day of antiheroes. He said, I've, you know, I've got some great ones, but they're mostly noir movies. You know, I, need, I, I want to talk about antiheroes because there aren't many movies that have antiheroes anymore. And, he, and he's right. You know, that person, like Scarface is a great example of an antihero where the whole movie is built around somebody who really is despicable. Right. But we are with him for whatever reason. We're rooting for him. Arbitrage, sure. Absolutely, there's an antihero. Uh, but mostly historically... It depends who you ask. It depends who you ask. 
arbitrage. Arbitrage, he's a hero. Yeah, right. Well, no, but, but oddly enough, hang on. Not, not to sit here and defend arbitrage. But the thing is that you you want him to get away with it, even though he's 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 a fraud, he's horrible to his family, he's cheating on his wife, he throws his daughter under the bus. Somehow, he also killed somebody. Somehow, you if not like him, you want him to get away with it. I say besides that, he's a good guy. I think you judge. I, I, I had sex with him. <laughs> there you go. But it's, <laughs> you know, the when he asked me this question, I thought, you know, a perfect example, maybe the best example is Dick Miller uh, as Paisley in Bucket of Blood. And it's not even so much how it's written because you could have cast another actor in that part and they would have played it like a real jerk you would never have empathized with him you would have those exact same lines the same scenes you would have just thought this guy is a self-absorbed uh completely pathetic hypocritical egotistical lunatic he's out of his mind but dick finds that groove he finds that groove where he lays on the sincerity and he wins you over and you think you know what i Go kill somebody else. Yeah. You win their respect. <laughs> you deserve it. And it's it's amazing how the film actually pushes you to that emotional place. You you almost want to take a shower afterwards. You think was I really is that did I really go there? Well, it starts out with a cat, like small enough, like just a cat. You get stabbed with a knife, and it's pretty. It looks really funny. It's like a clay cat with a clay knife in it. <laughs> and then slowly it escalates as the as the townspeople start disappearing. Yeah, no one, no one notices. No one says, "Where's Roger? Where's Bill?" Yeah, you know what? As a, as a, let, let's just say, as a murder mystery or police procedural, not that realistic. Because <laughs> ultimately, the person goes, is a cop. <laughs> and the other, there's two undercover cops in the in the bar and they're beating a coffee shop, and uh, one missing, and the other, this, the only time he mentions it, he's like on a page phone. Saying, by the way, one of the people he kills is played by Bert Convy. Uh-huh. Now, Bert Convy wound up becoming a big-time game show host in the 70s. That was Burt Convey? That was Burt Convey. The one he, uh, I, I, you know, uh, if I, should, I, should I give this away or not give it away? Go ahead. Okay, the one he hits with the pancake oh, pan? Wait, don't give that part away. Too late. Right. Um, he, by the way, uh, it's uh, 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 the butler did it. Um, Darth Vader's his father. I'm sorry, did I give that away? Um, that's Burt Convey. Yeah. He wound up being, a, what, like, a win, lose, or draw? Password, I think it was. Bert so Convy. At the time, he must have been. He looked really young. He looked he? really young, yes. yes. And you can tell he was like, "This is it, man. I'm gonna be an actor." And he winds up being a cheesy game show host. Little did he realize, twenty years later, cheese ball. Yeah, he was pretty cheesy in that. We're just talking about Walter when he becomes kind of the the alter, the mask, the alter ego, the uh, nutty professor, or whatever. He he walks in and he says, he tells the waitress he's ready to order. He's like, "Didn't you see me wave my Zen stick?" <laughs> and then he orders because he comes this pretentious uh, guy. He's got the hat. He's, He's wearing got the hat and a cane and those Zen stick, brother. Uh, bring me a cappuccino, a piece of papaya cheesecake, and a bottle of uh, Yugoslavian white wine. But <laughs> but that but that's why I think the film would resonate with 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 especially younger audiences because it deflates all the pretension of art and it also says you mean that there are adults out there in this world who will look at a dead cat with plaster over it and want to pay like five thousand dollars for it well those are their contemporaries i mean these are other these are people they've been trying to impress the whole time with their poetry and whatever and their songs and these people are just as impressed by a dead cat you know covered in uh, clay 
it's it's interesting too what the film says just about the subject of respect and what we do the lengths we go to to win the respect of others and you know that's actually really on many levels the same theme as rebel without a cause mm-hmm. i mean if you want to look at a studio film that tried to tackle that and that was one of the first studio films that along with you know blackboard jungle and a few others to really kind of try to get its hands around what was simmering with the youth in the 1950s and um that's all about, you know, we can't get respect. Uh, We can't get anybody to pay attention to us and, you know, can't get adults to realize that we're different from their generation. And Corman tackles a lot of those same ideas, but he wraps it up in, in a way that just, it doesn't take itself seriously, which is exactly how kids wanted to see it done. They didn't want to see a serious movie about their serious issues. They want to see a crazy movie about their issues. Well, also just the uh, the culture was changing so rapidly. I mean, when when you start talking post war, you know, post war, we're talking, you know, the, the Eisenhower era, fa- you know, father knows best and conformity and that kind of stuff. Then he started getting into the late fifties, early sixties, and now the culture's taking a total one eighty. You got hippies and you got heroin, you got free love and all this stuff, and it is it's just a a complete repudiation of like the last you know, three, four, five generations of Americans. So I think that this film came at exactly the right time. It kind of, it was, in a way, it was kind of ahead of its time in terms of the way it takes where the culture was becoming and already making fun of it. So it's really a terrific film. And the the great thing about the film, when you really think about it, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I should uh, really rent this film or whatever, it's only 65 minutes. It's really short. And again, you can watch it free on our website, uh, proudlyresents.com slash blood. But uh, talk about the heroin. I thought it was really interesting that it was it wasn't like a movie about how the horrors of heroin. He doesn't do it because of heroin. Heroin is just a thing that they did. Like um, a girl thought he was cute because he was a great artist, so she gave him some heroin, and that's why the police were there to find this heroin ring. And for some reason, he thought it made sense to <laughs> arrest the guy who just happened to have some heroin. Like that was his big arrest. That's what he's gonna blow his cover on. And so Not awesome. for the ring later. But it was heroin was just like that's what we do. That's who we are. As opposed to this is a terrible thing or, you know, this is the core or ignoring it totally. And we, we should say, you know, Dick Miller, because of that part and obviously a few others, but mainly because of that, has become such a, a favorite uh, cameo guy for primarily the films of Joe Dante, you mentioned uh, as well. But, you know, he shows up repeatedly as Paisley in Joe Dante's films and, you know, Howling and in uh, Twilight Zone, the movie, and also in some Alan Arkish films. Um, so it's uh, the, the old the old stock Corman guys who worked for Corman, they they keep giving Dick Miller work based on that movie. It's just, it's a, it's a great little kind of incestuous thing. But what do you think? Because his next movie was Little Shop of Horrors, and they used mm-hmm. the same sets for both. Movies. Written also by Charles B. Griffith, we should say, who wrote ton all of these stuff, all these things for Corman. You're not of this earth, and tons of other movies as well. And, and there's a lot of similarities. But what do you think, Jack Nicholson became Jack Nicholson? Dick Miller didn't become because you can argue and say, Dick well, Miller didn't want it. As I understand it, Dick Miller turned down Little Shop of Horrors because he thought it was too similar to Bucket of Blood. Which it, which it was. Which it was. So Dick Miller said, look, I've already done this. I want to do something else. So, you know, as you say, wound up going to, I mean, wound up starring Jack Nicholson. But I don't think that made him a star. It, it put him out there. But why do you think that Nicholson, because you could argue about how they look or how they act or the movies, but they're similar. You know, uh, if you if you look at Nicholson in Little Shop of Horrors and, and uh, gosh, any of the other stuff that he did at that time, 
he's not really yet Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. He's he's not he hasn't sort of found his persona, and that's what's always interesting about looking at early performances by a lot of these future stars, because there's always the role, there's always the moment where they break through, and you're like. Now he's found it. Now they found the groove. You know, they've been kind of grasping at things, sort of looking to see what works. It's like a comic, you know. Comics work for years to see what jokes work and where their delivery and their timing coincides with the right material. And not, you know, like if you were to take Patton Oswalt and hand him Richard Pryor's lines and vice versa, wouldn't necessarily be funny. You know, you got to find your space. And that's the same thing with these movie stars. They all, they're all looking for their space. And Jack Nicholson really didn't become that guy until Easy Rider. Uh-huh. And he himself says that, that there was that moment when he was, um, he went to the, 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 the big, I guess it was the all media screening or the cast and crew screening of uh, Easy Rider. And he realized how the audience, he saw himself on the screen and how the audience was reacting to it. And in that moment, he said, oh my God, I'm a movie star. Uh-huh. And it was that moment. It was that moment. Uh, so he wasn't that guy yet at this time. And and Dick Miller, I don't know that he even ever wanted to be a movie star. I think Dick Miller could have, but I think he's a guy who is a character actor in his in his blood and in his core, and that's what he really enjoys doing. I would love to see the Pat Oswalt doing Richard Pryor material. I think that would be. A, I love a, to see Pat Oswalt do anything. But the thing with Nicholson too is that he he's a guy whose gifts needed to blossom at that time. If Nicholson was. If Nicholson started doing films, you know, right after the war, let's say, in the mid-40s or something, what Nicholson's gifts are would not have been able to flower in that in that movie environment. Uh-huh. But now you're talking the Easy Rider time, you're talking the 60s, Nicholson, he's of course so Nicholson, he's got that edge, he's got that charm. I mean, really, he had to be, he, he, he could only become the Nicholson we love if he started doing movies when he started doing movies. If he had done it, if he had started 10 years ago, there's no way he can play those roles. He could never be who we want him to be. And even if he started today, I mean, if he started today, I, I, who knows what would happen to him, you know? I mean, he's, he's just, he's just got such an, he's just got such an edgy charm to him. I, I don't know that he would necessarily fit if he was a 20-year-old actor today, you know. But again, you know, Nicholson, he's... He wouldn't have been looked at. But everyone's making their own... Because everyone's talking about Greg Corman in terms of making your own projects. I mean, people can do that now uh, and make their own way. I mean, do you think there's that... you? Do you think there's a need for a remake of this film? Because they did one in 95. With Anthony Michael Hall yeah. doing not a very good job as playing Paisley. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm a fan. I'm not a fan of remakes generally. I am a fan, however, of remakes that reinvent the original film. I think the, the perfect example is Ocean's Eleven. You know, the original Ocean's Eleven, not a good film. No. But, but you watch it because it's Frank and it's Dean and it's the Rat Pack. And it's, it's a great ending. It's a great ending. Yeah. And, it's, and it's got a certain, it's got that feel. You know, you feel, it feels very Rat Packy. But I, when they redid it, Soderbergh really understood, uh, we're not, nobody cares about the Rat Pack. What we care about is a really cool premise and we're going to reinvent this and we're going to you know we're going to keep the bones but we're going to put uh, put a new face on it and a new suit on it and we're going to tailor it for a new time and they made a movie that stands all on its own in a really smart way i don't know that a bucket of blood presents that same opportunity i think it's i think what it says is very much I think it's very rooted in its time and it's very particular in its sensibilities and if you were to do it today You'd have to change so many things that it just wouldn't it, it, it wouldn't have the same resonance. I don't think. I feel like every generation kind of needs a bucket of blood. They need a movie like that just to make fun of what they're doing. Like I don't know what in the '80s we would have done, 
but just you know put a Paisley shit on it or, or I, neon and on dead people and say oh this is art oh. my fear is that I don't know that the and I, I hate to sound like an old man but I don't know that the current youth generation has any sense of humor or irony in what they watch I think that they look at like you know whatever Jersey Shore or, or Honey Boo Boo whatever and they dive right in they don't think there's any satire in that you know they just love it so I, I, I don't know what part of the culture you could you could treat the way Bucket of Blood treated bohemianism and have it resonate. Saturday Night Live had a great sketch called um, You Can Do Anything, I think. You Can Do That. Where oh, yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. great with two people and they're young kids and they're like, uh, a guy comes in and he says, I want to be a juggler. And they go, well, then you're a juggler. And he throws up three balls and they land on the floor. <laughs> and they're like, well, you just juggled. That makes you a juggler. And so there's got to be, you know, some self-awareness of that kind of generation. And, and as old guys looking at it, it might be, you know, a way to write it. I mean, this gets into a really big question, which is, you know, one of the things that that's always struck me about the way that movies have evolved just in a very global sense, and this gets a little bit existential, but, you know, if you go back to 1930, Everybody went to the movies a lot. I mean, you look at the number of tickets sold back then, they would die today if they would be able to sell that many tickets to the movies. People just don't go to the movies as much today because there wasn't television back then. There weren't as many sports teams. There was no internet. There weren't all these other things to do. So nobody ever really bothered asking, why do people go to the movies? It was what everyone did. And sure, there were some movies for adults and some for kids and so forth and so on. But, you know, flash forward 80 some odd years and now... We have to ask ourselves that question because not everybody goes to the movies anymore, certainly not with the same regularity. And, you know, kids, I don't think, have the same appreciation. Sitting down for 90 minutes, God forbid it be 120 minutes, no way. You know, all the things, you know, how many YouTube videos I could watch in that time? You know, how much texting I could get done? You know, what I could do? It's like they're, they're more interactive activities that are not so passive that they can do in that time. And that's what they want to do. So I think that demographic isn't just looking for something different in movies. They're looking for something different from movies for the most part. So I, I think we're, we're in a kind of a weird space now relative to then. Well, Corman kind of went with the times too. He started making cable movies and directed DVD movies. So he, you know, that kind of filmmaking would adjust to who's watching it. Like he found the kids' audience in the drive-ins. And then they went to the kid audience and now are watching Showtime at two in the morning looking for breasts and then DVDs and now their phone. But he also needed to be a factor. I mean, you know, his movies individually didn't necessarily make a lot of money. But if you make a thousand of them, the same sets and the same, the same sets and same people, suddenly you can make yourself a, a decent career. Uh-huh. You know, and again, you know, Corman won a uh, he, he won an honorary Oscar in 2007, something like that. Two or three years ago, and it was well deserved, you know, because again, he he's he's the one guy who did those sorts of films that everybody can universally respect, and part of that is because he lasted so long. Part of that is because he cultivated people like John Sayles and James Cameron and a bunch of people who we now all revere today. But uh, you know, it, it just seems like in, in any other context, somebody like that who just like you know crapped out a bunch of cheap films, you know, would probably not be as respected as Corman. But the but you have to give the the uh, the movie industry credit for realizing what he did ultimately bring to the table which go ahead no well, no go ahead well which is what what did he ultimately bring what what Corman brought was well he brought a number of things um 
he 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 brought a system, I think, more than anything else. Dick Miller told us something very interesting when we interviewed him for, for Schlock. He said, Roger understood something that nobody else understood at the time. You didn't have to pay a lot of money to get good actors. You found good actors and you got them cheap. And Corman understood something, which I think we can re- learn from now as budgets have just blown out the roof, which is keep it cheap, keep it low. That doesn't mean you have to make a cheap looking movie. I mean, you look at you look at even The Mask of the Red Death, for example. Okay, Mask of the Red Death was when he was making his Edgar Allan Poe stuff, and he was adapting all these things from Poe poems, and they're a little bit schlocky, but they're also really good looking. And Mask of the Red Death is a beautifully, beautifully photographed film. The DP was Nicholas Rogue. Now, it's an interesting story. Nicholas Rogue, you know, was originally supposed to be the DP on uh, Dr. Zhivago. He had been a camera operator for, for David Lean on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And Lean was going to, you know, kick him up to DP. And they just didn't see things the same way. So it didn't happen. And he went on to do stuff like Mask of the Red Death for Corman, where he could do his more garish photography. And Nick Rogue is a director, as we all know, with stuff from like Walkabout to, you know, Eureka and all the other you know, man who fell to earth. All the things he's done as a director has a really extreme vision. And he was able to lend that to Corman in Mask of the Red Death. And you, you suddenly, here you've got no money, but people who are committed to a certain look and a certain level of quality. And we're going to get good actors and they're going to understand it's a good project. You're not going to get your regular fee, but you're going to be in a good project, Vincent Price and whoever else. And suddenly you're not spending a lot of money, but you're making a really good movie that looks like a million bucks. Or, you know, if it were today, 40 million bucks. Uh, Hollywood doesn't think that way anymore. I know people who've gone in for, for meetings, for pitches at studios where they say, uh, you know, I got a great pitch and they give the pitch and, and the executive says, how much do you think that'll cost? I think we could do this for about 35 million because they're thinking prudently. They're thinking like Corman. Yeah. And the executive will say, oh, that's too bad because we're really looking for something in like the 85, 90 million dollar range. And they'll say, well, you know what? If you want to spend 80 million on this movie, be my guest. But... Why do they want to spend 80 million? Because they have it in their heads that if you want a movie that is going to make X amount of dollars, you have to spend X amount of dollars. And it's really, it's faulty logic. And Corman understood that. That's what Corman pioneered. That's faulty logic. You know that it doesn't matter what the movie costs. It matters what your production value is. And you get your level of production value and you get your level of cast and you get all of that stuff for the money you're willing to spend, not the money that somebody thinks you need to spend. We could we could do with more of that again. That's the most important thing that I think Corman brought to the table. And the other thing was uh, he was willing to risk, take risks on new people, on young talent. Because he was spending less, he was willing to say, you know what, you have, there's no reason why I should take a risk on you other than the fact that I like you and you look like you're smart. So sure, let's, let's give you a shot at a movie. It's not costing me a lot. So I can afford to risk letting, let you write a movie, let you act in a movie, let you direct a movie. And look at the people he gave us. I mean, again, Mark mentioned John Sayles, James Cameron, Joe Dante, uh, you know, Francis Coppola. I mean, on and on and on and on. Th- th- these are the people who came out of that factory. That's true. Now, if you look at like, uh, and that's, by the way, not not just in front of the camera, that's behind the scenes, too. We mentioned John Sayles. And even, you know, when, when you look at uh, um, Corman, you know, Corman did this film. He did like, I think he did Battle Beyond the Stars and Humanoids from the Deep. That was a Corman film, right? Yeah. Score by a young guy who nobody ever heard of named James Horner, who somehow wound up being hired by Nicholas Meyer, 
to do Star Trek II when Paramount would have been very happy with a synth score, but Nicholas Meyer didn't want a synth score, so he decides to hire this guy, James Horner, who had done a couple Corman films and can come cheap because he's young, and then Horner delivers a great score for Star Trek II that winds up launching his career. Remember Battle Beyond the Stars. Battle Beyond the Stars also had special effects supervisor James Cameron. I mean, that's where Horner and Cameron met on Battle Beyond the Stars. So when you flash forward to 11 Academy Awards and you know, for in, in untold hundreds of millions and billions of dollars for Titanic... Those are two guys, the director and the composer, who met on a Corman film when they were nobodies. That's right. And then, and then to continue that story, uh, so uh, Cameron and Horner meet. They wind up doing Aliens together. They had a horrible falling out because Horner was continually pissed off that he was given less and less time to record his score, which is standard now. But at the time, uh, he was really pissed off. They only had a couple of weeks to, re- re- to uh, uh, record the score. And the fact that Cameron kept tweaking scenes up to the very last minute, which means that scenes had to be rescored over and over again because Cameron kept tweaking it, that they had a huge falling out. Horner winds up getting an Oscar nomination for the score, but they, had, but they didn't talk for years. And then only when Titanic came around, did Horner and Cameron sort of think of each other at the same time? And one called the other and said, hey, man, I was kind of thinking of you too for this. And then they wind up, of course, collaborating on Titanic and. And, uh, and both won Oscars. So it, he, Titanic was good. The Titanic score. In the movie. Well, the the the, the James Cameron Titanic. Oh, I never saw it. You, you never saw Titanic. <laughs> right. So that, can I say something, by the way? So when. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, no, knows where this is going. So Adam emails us and says, "What movie do you want to talk about?" Right, right. So me, because I'm a jerk, I email him back and I say, "How about Avatar? Does that count as a cult film?" And I think you took me seriously when I said I did. that. I was you being very polite. I'm a producer, so I was taking it and then seeing what other ideas we had. Because <laughs> you, email, I, I should call it this email. You email me back. You're like, yeah, you know, a, a cult has a pretty broad definition in our context. And I'm like, he actually would want us. To, he would be okay. I mean, not okay, but he would actually let us if we insisted to talk about Avatar as a cult film. Well, I think it, as a good bad cult film, as like a movie that's so bad it's good. Like you can like when I w- went back and I did. Uh, Purple Rain, because somebody said to me, if you watch that again, it's a bad film. Because when we watched it as kids, it was the greatest film ever. Right. Changed my life. You watch it now, it's ridiculous and over the top. So I thought, <laughs> well, maybe that's where you're going with this. <laughs> maybe there's better ideas, since you guys are film reviewers and you picked Avatar. Although I'm... I, now, wait, should, should you tell the story about the LA Film Critics Association's voting for Avatar, or should I? So Wade and I are members of the LA Film Critics Association, which is a rather august group of film critics that include critics from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and and the former Newsweek magazine, I guess. And um, so every year we vote for our awards. And it's, t- it's taken seriously. We do Best Picture, Best Actor. You can go to Lafka.net and read all of our awards. And if you win an award, we have a dinner. And whoever wins shows up to the dinner, including Jennifer Lawrence, who we'll all be meeting uh, next Saturday at our awards dinner, and Amy Adams, because we gave them awards and whatever. Hunger Games. For uh, Silver Linings Playbook. The the, the whole totally, totally overrated and completely overpraised Silver Linings Playbook. Anyway, yes. Oh, those deserves every bit of it. But Bradley Cooper, Best Actor? Best Picture? Lawrence of Arabia and Silver Linings Playbook. I'm not seeing the connection. I mean, come on. Stop right. that. Crash. Go ahead. Crash. I hated Crash. He, he Wade loved Crash. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's so pretentious. Anyway, so, it's horrible. So, um, 13 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, 
out and quit. Go ahead. Hey, look, I, I think Crash Crash represents Los Angeles that I grew up in. That's all I'm saying. Horrible drivers crashing into each other. That's what Los <laughs> exactly. Angeles is the way. Exactly. Okay, so uh, every year we the group gets together in a room and we vote for our awards. And it's, you know, 40 critics and we go around the room and we each vote for awards, you know, best actor, best picture, best director, best documentary, the whole nine yards. And it's a pretty tense room. And I have to say, it can be pretty exciting because these are some great critics. These are some serious writers. And we're all voting in, in a competition that will influence Oscar voting months down the line or now weeks down the line. So it's the Avatar year. And everybody's wondering what's going to happen with Avatar. No one's going to vote for Best Picture because we're all a bunch of August film critics and, and screw that crap. So when um, time comes for us to vote for Best Animated Feature, somebody votes for Avatar. <laughs> and then we all start giggling. And then somebody else votes for Avatar. And basically, the douchebags in the back of the room, Wade, Wade myself included, all started voting for Avatar for best animated film. And so we're thinking, oh my God, this might win. We might actually give Avatar our award for best animated film, which would be hilarious, an embarrassment, a joke, but just too classic. And then eventually the voting, which goes, you know, critic at a time as you go around the room, eventually the voting wound up going back towards the front of the room where the more serious critics are, and they pretty much, they wound up voting for, what did, what, what, what did we give that year? I can't even remember, but I remember that vote, and that vote was brilliant. Uh, it was, yeah, in, encasing Avatar in an animation award, a little bit like encasing a cat in clay. Bringing it back to Thank we. There we go. Uh, I'm trying to find out, what, what year was Avatar? 2000-something? Uh, 10? 12? 16? 14? What was it? 2008. <laughs> 2008? About the same time you sold me your car. <laughs> okay, we gave it to a film that I loved, that Wade hated, which is the fantastic Mr. Fox. For animation. Meh. I mean, wait, back to the, back to the film. Yeah, he kills a cat. Everyone thinks it's amazing. And what do you think of some of the the poetry that was going on in the? <laughs> uh, you mean you mean like the the, the kind of beatnik-y poetry in the film? Yeah, uh, it was like terrible. When he gives him praise, the guy who writes his poem for. Uh, for Dick Miller. Well, I, I think I, I think that obviously speaks again to you know, sort of taking the air out of the pretension of that whole scene at the time. I mean, when we all look back on it, the '50s and the '60s and the '70s, all there's something something changed in the '50s. When we look back on the '30s and '40s, we look at the suits and the dancing and the, the attitude and the style, and we think, oh, those are cool. They, those people had style. And then you get into the '50s with the beatnik stuff, and '60s with the hippies, and you know the go-go dancing, and the '70s with disco and all of this. Something happens in that post that that post World War II generation where style becomes kitsch. And the poetry really speaks to that. But adults who are in the thick of it, and even kids who are of a certain age who are in the middle of it, they don't realize how cheesy they are. But there's always a generation that looks at it and says, that's cheesy. And I remember this very well from the 70s. Like, I love disco music as much as anybody else, but I was not the generation in the 70s that was going to the discos. The people who were going to the discos wearing the, the satin shirts and the bell bottoms and the platform shoes and who thought they were so cool. I was a generation of kids who realized they were ridiculous. <laughs> and there's all and sometimes it gets younger and younger. And I think certainly with that whole beatniky scene, the kids who were going to the drive-ins in the 50s. They knew that was ridiculous. So, and it was silly. So if you made a movie, remade that movie now, you have to make fun of something current. Because if we went back and made fun of people yeah. in the 70s. 
that would just be low hanging fruit. It wouldn't be unfair. We'd have to, we'd have to, we'd have to find the thing now. What is the thing now that's pretentious and silly and ridiculous and self-absorbed? To answer your question on my own show, even though I should be asking you, (laughs) but uh, is the YouTube, I think as the podcasters are pushing it on the YouTubers who are pushing it on podcasters, but that whole gen, I worked for a friend of ours who runs a YouTube channel and just, we're, just being the old guy in the room felt like really weird. Everybody's like, "Oh, I'm an expert at this," and I know I'm gonna. It, it may be. It it may be. I mean, I I also think that what's different about now from any previous generation is that everything is so fragmented. You, you go back to as, as recently as the 80s, you knew that there were X million eyes and ears falling on this headline of the New York Times or on 60 Minutes or on this television show or listening to this radio show. Or, like half the country. You, you knew where people were congregating uh, in that sense. You knew, not, not literally, but where their eyes and their ears were congregating. You knew where to go in the print medium, in the television medium, in, in movies. You knew where to go and what to do to capture millions of people. Today, it's all fragmented, mainly because of the internet. So people don't congregate with their eyes and their ears. They they all go to different places, different websites, different, uh, you know, the movies are fragmented television more than anything else. You know, once upon a time when there were three national networks, pretty easy to figure out where you're going to get all of your attention. Today, there are hundreds and hundreds of networks. You can't ever again recapture that moment where you knew that two thirds of the country was going to be watching the same thing at the same time on the same day. That's never going to come back. Good answer, Wade. Uh, no, really, you know, really, is that there's really only a couple of of, uh, of shows that are like that. The Super Bowl is like that. That's why they command so much money for their spots. The Oscars are like that. You know, when uh, when American Idol, which used to be more of a juggernaut than it is now, is sort of fading a little bit. But do you remember the first season of American Idol or Survivor? Survivor. Like, that was a real moment. Yeah. I mean, that was a big cultural moment. You know, so I mean, there are very few water col- cultural water co- uh, watercolor cultural water cooler moments anymore. And there's a lot of cultural watercolor moments. They really are, yeah. you know, but they're they're a little, but they tend to be a little more Paisley, Walter Paisley, bam. Right back. But here's the thing, though. But then again, if you're a network, and this is going far afield from Bucket of Blood, but if you're a network and your primetime reality show gets like a 1.3, you're a phenomenon. Like I remember in '99, I worked on a talk show hosted by Roseanne and we premiered with a three, which is, huge. which is about 3 million people. Yeah. Well, it wasn't huge at the time, but it was really at the big. time that was a disappointment. That was, Oh my God, only 3 million people. Now, if any of the daytime talk shows, Katie Couric or Anderson Cooper or Jeff Probst, if any of them got a, got a, got a three, they would kill themselves with ecstasy and joy. They get, if you get over a one, you're safe for a while. Like Ellen doesn't get a three. She gets less than a three. She gets less than a three. But again, Ellen is like a phenomenon. You know, I mean, I know that uh, for a lot of these, pri- and I, I speak for uh, having, you know, I speak because I work at a particular cable network. If you get over like a 1.5, you're basically kind of safe. Uh-huh. You're okay. You know, but again. At, at a ca- basic cable journal, what do you need? Uh, to, to be picked up. Yeah. For a second, one point five, you're considered kind of a bubble show. Like one point two to one point five, you're kind of a bubble show. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Uh-huh. If you're one point five or above, you're pretty safe to be picked up for another season. I mean, that's being very general, but that's pretty much generally speaking what happens. Right, but when you did Roseanne, but you know how many people want like that show only had three million viewers, but they people got a lot of response out of it. 
Yeah, it, it, it got picked up for a second season kind of barely. I think the reason why it got picked up for a second season was because there were already agreements in place with stations to run it for two years. That's so you might as well just run it for two years. Otherwise, there might be penalties or whatever's going to happen. No, but this is a great story because a lot of people dropped it. Yes. And then you guys were doing a show for nobody, really. Correct. The second season, it got dropped by, by, by a lot of stations. And we wound up uh, doing a show that, you know, Roseanne didn't care after a while. She barely cared the first season. She surely didn't care the second season. And But look, you know, we're professionals. We work in TV. You got to put on a show. I mean, the only thing I remember is that the very last episode of the very last, you know, the very last episode of the show, I sat in the booth and I read USA Today. Well, I remember that, that. I remember the stage manager, Mike, would sit on the side of the stage reading the newspaper <laughs> during the show. He would be, and he would do that thing where he called you whatever. He'd sit down, he'd turn his finger around, go, all right, 10, 9, 8, 7. <laughs> it, you, you really, you, we, we were really producing, at the very, very last, we were really producing that show as if uh, we just didn't give a crap. But I know people who got on it, went on it, and at the time it's had huge hits on their websites and... You know, the geo sites at the time. But so people were reacting to it. I mean, it made a difference. The, the one thing that the show had, and I'll, I'll give the mic back to Wade because I, I know he wants to say something. But the one thing that the show had, which no one gave it credit for because it didn't last long enough, is that in the second season, we had a character. He was a real guy, sat in the audience. He was our, now again, don't forget, this is like 2000. He was our webmaster. And Roseanne would toss to the webmaster, and the webmaster would read emails, and uh, we would have like a ticker, I think, that he was able to read off of. Now, in 2000, you know, shows didn't have webmasters. That was like, wow, webmaster, what does that guy do? So, in a way, we were kind of, the show, it was my idea, but the show was kind of ahead of its time in having a webmaster. Now, web is just baked into everything on TV. You can't, I mean, frankly, in about 10 years, the two will be synonymous, TV and web. But in 2000, when the second season of the Roseanne Talk Show had a webmaster, that was a bit, that was, we didn't realize it at the time, but it was kind of a little ahead of its time. Bringing this back to where it sort of started <laughs> before going tangential, I think this is why we can't compare now with any other period because everything is so fragmented now. I don't really know, and and we're still in this. We're still in the middle of it. I don't know where we find out what what pop culture really is anymore. It it it's there's no music that this kind of ended really in the 90s. You know, if you, I, I listen on XM radio, you know, they've got the channel six is, or five is music from the 50s, four is from the 40s, six from the 60s, seven from the 70s, eight from the 80s, nine from the 90s. And when you get into the 90s, it doesn't sound like anything. It doesn't sound like it has a personality. It sounds like anything. And I don't know what popular culture is anymore. It sort of has lost its identity. So I think we're all still trying to grasping for what's, what's popular what's hip what's not it just everything is all over the map that's beautiful way it's so beautiful thank you (laughs) okay who would like to read the uh, poem from a bucket of blood oh who would like to read the poem it's a pretty long poem we we can probably uh split it in half yeah split it in half that'd be great so uh is it now it becomes uh the talk of the town toast and one of the pretentious uh poet that we talked about writes a poem for him. At first, the poet doesn't give a shit about him and thinks he's nothing. Then he writes his poem for... Uh, and he, please, do it as a beatnik. As a beatnik? Well, I was taking requests from the audience. They wanted you to do it in the style of David Mamet. Hold on, I'm just kidding. <laughs> wow, I had to wrap my head around that. So... I a suggestion from the audience... Not proctologist. <laughs> how, how is how does a proctologist read something? <laughs> I will talk to you of art for it's nothing else to talk about. Uh, how am I reading this? Like just like a beatnik? Like you would, yeah. 
How about like Shatner? Okay, great. I will talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about, for there is nothing else. Life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. Now, of course, you can't see my hand gestures, which are hilarious. Hand gestures are selling it. Thank you. (laughs) Burn gas, buggies, and whip your sour cream of circumstance and hope, and go ahead and sleep your buddy heads off. Creation is all else is not. Creation is graham crackers. Let it all crumble to feed the creator. Feed him that he may be satisfied. The artist is all others are not. A canvas is a canvas or a painting. A rock is a rock or a statue. A sound is a sound or is music. A preacher is a preacher or an artist. Wade, please, let me give you the rest. Ah, oh, where are John, Joe, Jake, Jim, Jerk? Dead, dead, dead. They were not born before they were born. They were not born. What are Leonardo, Rembrandt, Ludwig? Alive, alive, alive. They were born. Bring on the multitudes with a multitude of fishes. Feed them with the fishes. For liver oil to nourish the artist. Stretch their skin upon an easel to give him canvas. Crush their bones into a paste that he might mold them. Let them die, and by their miserable deaths become the clay within his hands, that he might form an ashtray or an ark. Pray that you may be his diadem, gold, glory, paint, clay, that he might take you in his magic hands and wring from your marrow wonder. For all that is comes through the eye of the artist. The rest are blind fish, swimming in the cave of aloneness. Swim on, you maudlin, muddling, maddened fools, and dream that one bright sunny night the artist will bait a hook and let you bite upon it. Bite hard and die. In his stomach, you are very close to immortality. Although, although it's funny, when, when, you read the, uh, when you read the poem, you realize that some of that is foreshadowing. He says, um, he says, artists stretch their skin upon an easel to give him canvas, crush their bones into a paste that he might mold them. Let them die, and by their miserable deaths, become the clay within his hands that he might form an ashtray or an ark. Interesting and foreshadowing. They, they, nice. they, they have a Greek chorus of a, a guy playing the guitar, singing constantly about it's him. Cool. Killing. Yeah, and they have no idea. Dick uh, Miller has no idea that this guy caught him. Everybody seems to know. But mm-hmm. the, the guy who runs the... His landlord seems to know that he's killing people. Mm-hmm. Something's up. And the guy who owns the art gallery, uh, coffee shop... He seems to know, but no one does anything about it. Well, this it, it, it wasn't. I, I was talking. To, I was just talking to our friend Tim Cogshell, who's another one of my film week colleagues. We were talking about the same Name same thing on De, same thing on Dexter. Uh-huh. Everybody on Dexter seems to know that he's a serial killer, and they don't do anything about it. So, look, let's face it. In pop culture, this happens all the time. Is there really much difference between Clark Kent and Superman? You going to tell me that Batman, Bruce Wayne, puts on the stupid uh, cowl, and nobody can tell it's Bruce Wayne? Oh, who's that? I thought it was Bruce Wayne. It's, 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 who's his mystery man? Wait, you think Bruce Wayne is Batman? He's not. <laughs> I'm saying pop cultures. I'm I'm saying the 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 uh, suspension of disbelief is especially. Uh, is, oh, can we talk about tropes for one second? Because this is what okay. kills me, and this is in every show, including Homeland and any CSI is if they're in Life, which is a great TV show. Um, they have pictures on the wall of who they're looking for, like almost like headshots black and white pictures and then they have like string or lines connecting them and then this is how they figure out a case they stare at the pictures they don't look through files they don't read anything they don't go anywhere they just stare at the pictures until they figure out the case 
And like everybody has these pictures on their wall. The scandal, the guy had it. I don't know, there's other tropes like that. That drives me crazy because how can you really solve a case and why does everyone have these pictures up there? With I, string. I have no idea. Is that a, we'll cut that part out, Mark, and we'll leave in the part about the Avatar story. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, that went nowhere. So other Corman films that you recommend? Yeah, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, absolutely. The Intruder is a great film. I mean, if you if you like to mock William Shatner and don't think he's ever been a serious actor, watch The Intruder. The Intruder is, is Corman's conscience on film. And uh, Shatner is just phenomenal in that movie. Um, any, of the, any of the Poe films I like. Uh, the Raven is probably the least interesting of them. Peter Laurie covered with feathers is a little bit strange. But uh, Mask of the Red Death is good. Um... Trying to think of any others that are that are really really noteworthy. You know, as a as a producer, people may not know that all those horrible sci-fi channel films like Dinotopias and Sharkopolis or something that sci-fi has been making a mint off of, even though they're all terrible. Yeah. Those are all. I mean, Corman doesn't direct them, but those are all Corman productions. Really, he owns Asylum. Well, like uh, he's the producer of. Piranaconda, Sharktopia, Dino Croc versus Super Gator. That's, he's the pre produces all those films that Sci Fi Network shows. I'm really glad you installed that IMDb in your laptop. I know, aren't I? <laughs> really well, he's done so many films. Uh, it's, 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 there's so many to choose from. Um, you know what? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend something that's fairly recent for him. It's the last film actually he directed. It was Frankenstein Unbound, mm-hmm. which really is for a return to form because he had not directed a film. He 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 had taken a like a twenty year. Uh, hiatus from directing and he comes back with Frankenstein Unbound which is not a bad film again it's not the reason why we love Corman the the Corman produced films are the ones that are Corman you know Death Race 2000 is great Caged Heat is great Boxcar Birth is great which of course was directed by Martin Scorsese Um, Death Race well Death Race well Death Race 2000 was Paul Bartel yeah this is my favorite yeah I uh... Grand Theft Auto Ron Howard sure Sure. Uh, the, the, the Asylum, it's funny that you mentioned it, because I, I know the guys at the Asylum, as it happens. My, one of my very first writing gigs was um, when I was in film school, uh, was for Production Magazine, which was run by David Michael Latt, uh, who would eventually go on to co-found the Asylum. So I've known those guys for a very long time. And they are Corman's uh, heirs today in many respects. I mean, oh, yeah. what they're doing is what AIP and Corman and, uh, and, and all those guys did back in the day. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, if there's a model... We're, t- we're asking, you know, is there is there something we could do a modern day equivalent? I, I think maybe what they're doing, maybe they found it. Maybe what the you know the mockbuster is today's equivalent of uh, of mocking those things of, of you know they they're out there at the very same time mocking the things that are that everyone else is taking seriously. So maybe the asylum has figured out the answer to your question earlier. So. I never heard of that term, mockbuster. That's what that they call. A, that's what they call them. And in fact, great. there was there was they were recently taken to court. You know that they took them to court. For they, they were going to release a Hobbit movie, and uh, and uh, they they got taken to court for that one. The others have just figured we're going to ride it. They did Titanic two, which yeah. I was going to say. I saw. Titanic two, the revenge. Uh, yeah. All right. Well. We're going to wrap this up, uh, but not as abruptly as you guys wrap up your podcast. <laughs> well, so here's the thing. Okay. The door closes and they leave. Well, here's what happens. So Wade and I are, are at the end of recording our podcast, the IGN DigiGods, which you can check out at digigods.com. And uh, there's a knock on the door, and it's Adam, who, who we are expecting. He comes right on time. Right on time. Yes. Yeah, because I sat in my car for a while. Yes, thank you very much. And uh, But for some reason, I think Wade and I had like some sort of like, oh my God, there's a visitor here. We're scared. Performance anxiety. We usually do this by ourselves. And we just sort of, and you can hear this on this week's podcast, we just said goodbye. 
Not like the usual thing we do. Any last words, Mark? Any recommendations for this week? No, just goodbye. I'll give you a shot now. Any uh, last words, Mark? Any recommendations? For yes, that? goodbye. Uh, any recommendations? Please? Zero Dark Thirty. Go see it. That's not a cult film, but it's it's out in theaters, and if if you miss it, you're going to really regret it. What's your feeling on Silver Linings Playbook? I think you know what. The first time I saw it, I thought uh, it's fine. You know, it's as good as a movie needs to be. I didn't think it was great. Second time I saw it, I cried like a baby. First time I saw it, it was called Garden State. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Prowler Presents, ProwlerPresents.com. Our Twitter's at ProwlerPresents. You guys want to tell your Twitter so we can find uh, Mark and Wade? Uh, we know we're, we're more Facebook people. Go ahead. The, uh, the IGN, uh, the DigiGods have a Facebook page where there's a lot of activity, people recommending films, people kind of shooting the breeze about movies, upcoming movies, DVDs, Blu-rays. So check us out on uh, the Facebook page, IGNDigiGods.com. We're not really big tweeters. Uh, because our, our, frankly, our thoughts are so brilliant right. that 140 characters is it 140 or 120? For you guys, I can get you 145. That, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I can I, I can buy it for you wholesale. Yeah. Um, we're not big tweeters, so the Facebook page. Okay, that's it. Facebook page. Just search on Digigods. And uh, as a real quick story, um, I had an interview at a cable network where Mark works, and there's a big waiting room where it's a bunch of salesmen and losers hang out and wait. And I, I said I was coming, and then uh, the security told me to sit down, and, and they're in the middle. And then this woman walks up to security. They're talking to her, and they're pointing to me. And then she walks up to me, and she goes, uh, Hi, what are you doing here? And I was like, I have this meeting at 4 o'clock. You and I scheduled it. Uh, I don't remember. I was like, well, we scheduled this meeting. And they, they're looking at me like they're going to throw me out. And then you walk by, Mark walks by, and you just <laughs> said, you pointed to her, and you said, I don't know what the job is. Just hire him. <laughs> and she was like, all right. And they brought me upstairs and they realized they made a mistake in the computer. So the next time I was in that building for an interview for a bigger job uh, for another network there, I saw you walking. Oh, so I had this great interview with the two EPs. It's Vinny and something else. And the Vinny guy and I went to the same college at the same time and we're hitting it off and he wants to walk me to the elevator. So this is going great. We're walking out and I see Mark a few steps ahead of me. Now I could have just let you go and called you later and said, I saw you in the building. But I thought, I'm going to say hi to Mark, and he's going to say, hire this guy, <laughs> and I'm going to look like a fucking genius. But the intuition voice said, do not do that. And I thought, why? It's Mark. He's definitely going to say it. And even if he doesn't, it'll be pleasant. So I said, hey, Mark. You turn around, you look, you point to the guy, and you say, hire this guy. You point to me, you say, hire this guy. He's definitely hire him. And then we do the introductions, and I forgot the guy's name. <laughs> so did you get that job? No. <laughs> what? Mark looks because I'm Mark. And I said, this is Mark. And we all stare at each other. And Vinny says, I'm Vinny. <laughs> and I was like, well, their job just went away. Adam Spiegelman, the king of tact. Yes. <laughs> Diplomacy. All right. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Absolutely.